When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In mid-March of 2022, a video spread virally across social media platforms. An elephant with its trunk wrapped around the top bar of its enclosure, its eye casting an anxious look out. A keeper pats his cheek and holds an apple, trying to comfort the distressed animal. The elephant was trapped in his enclosure in a zoo during the Russian bombardment of Kiev. In Borodyanka, hundreds of dogs were left to fend for themselves in an animal shelter when Ukrainians were forced to flee the Bucha region as the Russians laid waste to the city. When volunteers returned, the vast majority of the dogs had died of dehydration and malnutrition. In one social media post, a Ukrainian man described opening the gates of his horse's stalls to let them run free, knowing that they would have a better chance at survival if they weren't locked up when he escaped from the encroaching Russians. Animals are often unwitting victims in times of war, vulnerable to bombs and IEDs, and trapped in war zones when their people must evacuate. But animals can have different roles in war, too. Animals have been used to move soldiers and equipment, and even as weapons themselves. Horses, mules, and oxen were critical to the movement of soldiers, weapons, and supplies in nearly every war across time. Armies in Nigeria used bees as a weapon. In 1941, the United States military began a military unit just for dogs, Dogs for Defense, that trained dogs for use on and behind the front lines. Around 200,000 dogs were trained by the Nazis for use in death camps. Animals also served ideological functions in times of upheaval and war. In fascist Japan and Germany in the 1930s, specific dog breeds became symbols of national and ethnic identities. In the United States and across Europe, zoo animals have been used to underscore narratives of sacrifice in times of war, helping to emphasize to humans that they too should give things up in the name of victory. And animals have served purely practical purposes, used as test subjects in military weapons testing, stand-in patients in combat medic training, and as suicide bombers. Animals are victims, weapons, mascots, heroes, and soldiers in human conflicts, and have been for as long as humans have made war. But perhaps the most dramatic has been the war elephant, the massive, intimidating, trumpeting beast of ancient warfare. Elephants are the largest land animals on Earth, but not only are they huge and powerful, they experience human-like emotions, are extremely intelligent, and have long memories. The combination of their extreme power and deep intelligence have long made them valuable to humans, especially as military machines. 
Today, we're talking about the history of war elephants in ancient and modern warfare. I'm Sarah. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. Welcome back, listeners. We want to thank you all for subscribing and supporting us over the last five years. Our Patreon supporters keep this history excavation team digging. Wink, wink. <laughs> and we owe the most to our fabulous auger and excavator level patrons. Lauren, Edward, Iris, Denise, Agnes, Susan, Peggy, Colin, Maddie, Maria, Jesse, and Hannah. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. It's embarrassing how the dig puns make me laugh still. <laughs> <laughs> embarrassing or evidence of the longevity of this relationship. Ah, uh, let's call it that. Sure, sure, sure. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that each of our episodes relies on the research and writing of historians and other scholars. This episode was written using the brilliant work of historians Thomas Troutman, John Kinder, and Vicki Constantine Croak, among others. You can find a full bibliography plus footnotes and links for every episode in our show notes on our website, digpodcast.org. And don't forget, if you're interested in something that you heard today, please go check out these excellent books and articles by these scholars. The use of elephants in war originated in the late Vedic period in India, probably somewhere between 1000 and 500 BCE. This is a little contested. There are historians and classicists that suggest that various North African, Chinese, and Indian societies may have domesticated elephants before this period, but the evidence is thin that they were actually used in any lasting and important way. There are two young African elephants buried in a cemetery in Hierakonopolis in Upper Egypt that were buried in the pre-dynastic period, sometime around roughly 3000 BCE. But these elephants are sort of outliers in Egyptian history. Elephants weren't key symbols in Egyptian art and only appear in writings when Egyptian kings encountered them in other kingdoms, such as Syria. They also appear in ancient Assyrian and Chinese texts and art, but references to actually using elephants in warfare are few and generally vague. The Indus civilization, located in the Indus River Valley in what is now um, the area of northwest India and eastern Pakistan, was far more familiar with elephants than other civilizations, likely because Asian elephants were indigenous to the area. <laughs> Elephants appear often on seals and images and even um, are represented in children's toys. Historian Thomas Troutman writes in his Environmental History of Elephants in Indian Kingdoms that the use of elephants for war was influenced by the arrival of the Arya people, ancient people from the Central Asian steppe, um, their introduction into India, um, bringing with them their culture of horseback riding into a land that had no indigenous horses, but did have lots of elephants. In the Mahabharata, a Sanskrit epic poem compiled sometime between the 3rd century BCE and the 3rd century CE, there are numerous references to elephant warriors, almost all of them kings or skilled warriors, who are said to have come from regions known to have large populations of elephants, with what they refer to and what we all refer to throughout as elephant forests. 
The Ramayana, another Sanskrit epic, gives this description of a battle scene featuring both horses and elephants. <laughs> like a cave filled with lions, the city Ayodhya was full of fiery warriors, skilled and yielding and accomplished in their art. It was full of the finest horses, bred in the region of Balika, Banuya, Kamboja, the great river Indus, the equals of Hari's steed. It was filled with exceedingly powerful, rutting elephants, like mountains born in the Vindhya hills in the Himalaya. The city was always full of bull elephants looking like mountains and always in rut. Elephants of the Bhadramandra, Bhadramurga, and Murgamandra breeds descended from the cosmic elephants Anjanya and Vamanya. We're going to talk about a couple of things that we see in this quote, um, one now and then one in a couple of minutes. So just kind of keep this quote in your brain. But first, I want to point out again that we see horses and elephants here being used together. The king of this city has the, quote, finest horses and these powerful rutting elephants alongside even more fiery warriors. This is all a demonstration of his wealth and power, of course, but also should make us think about the kingdom's location. Elephants and horses require very different environments. Elephants in the forest, horses in open grasslands. India has both environments. To quote Thomas Troutman, The fact that this region straddled the separate yet reasonably contiguous habitats of elephants and horses meant that Indian kings could have both animals in their cavalries. Countries further west, including Afghanistan and Persia and the Middle East more generally, had horses but no wild elephants. Southeast Asia had wild elephants but few horses. India's rulers had both. We'll discuss later the lengths that some of those kingdoms and leaders outside of India went to acquire elephants to use in their armies. So let's talk a little bit about war elephant practicalities. The ideal war elephant in the Indus kingdoms was an adult male. The bigger and more intimidating, the better. We should mention that, obviously, the elephants were used in the Indus kingdom were Asian elephants, which are generally smaller and built a bit differently than African elephants, We'll come back to this later. Yeah, keep that in your mind because I'm going to complicate that statement (laughs) later on. (laughs) (laughs) Their hugeness, you know, because they're still elephants, means that they're difficult to care for and control. First, if you're going to have elephants to use in war, you need to be able to find elephants to use in war. So this is difficult partly because of the immense amount of food that they require and because it's just difficult to breed elephants in captivity. So Indian kingdoms obtained war elephants by capturing young adult males from the forest they lived in. This was not, this is super not easy. Elephants are huge and young male elephants are particularly dangerous. Capturing them required large numbers of quote unquote elephant hunters, which also speaks to the wealth and influence of the kings who set those hunts into motion. The need to regularly replenish the herd with new young elephants also meant that Indian kingdoms were tied to the elephant forests in a way. It it was in the interest of the kingdom that those forests and the elephants in them be protected. This link 
to the forest was reflected in the ways that Indians wrote about the elephant's own relationship to the forest. One Indian text on elephants described the way that elephants remembered the forest, mourned for their freedom, and resisted domestication. Quote, forest elephants who dwelt there in the forest happily and by the power of fate have been brought to the village in bonds, afflicted by harsh, bitter, cruel words, by excessive grief, fear, bewilderment, bondage, etc., and by sufferings of mind and body, are quite unable for long to sustain life when from their own herds they have come into the control of men. On mountain ridges, in the water of the mountain torrents, in lotus pools and rivers, ever remembering how he played freely with female elephants in the midst of the forest, the elephant, dejected and beset with manifold troubles, is unwilling to eat stalks of white sugar cane, though repeatedly placed before him. Think on the pleasure he formerly experienced in the forests, constantly brooding, restraining the flapping of his ears and his tail, becoming very haggard from the hardships of the village. In a few days, the newly caught elephant comes to death. Isn't that sad? Yes. Like the thought that some elephants, when they were captured, just kind of gave up on life because they were pining for for their habitats makes me very sad. So elephants are difficult to catch, and then they're difficult to keep in captivity because of their size. And according to Indian texts, anyway, this constant longing for the freedoms of the forest. But they're also incredibly difficult to keep adequately fed. Elephants are grazers, and they eat constantly and consume something like 330 pounds of grasses and leaves daily. Captivity changes their diet, their digestion, and their energy needs drastically. An elephant that is captured and put into training will require even more nutrition-dense food because it won't have the freedom to be constantly foraging, and it will be kept working, and so making different demands on their their, uh, metabolism. Indians took the diet of elephants very seriously and the changes in their diets very seriously. Even writing a scientific treatise on captive elephant management called the Matangalila. The author of the text detailed how a newly captured elephant has to be carefully transitioned to a captive diet to avoid illness. According to the Matangalila, a freshly captured elephant should be fed increasing amounts of boiled rice, rice grits, and other cooked foods mixed with grass. And I should also say um, that typically, although not always, um, most kingdoms or peoples that kept war elephants or elephants in domestication for whatever reason, let them go at night. Like they would work them during the day and then let them go kind of wander in the evening so they would feed themselves whenever possible because it was just so difficult first to keep them adequately fed and also because of this longing that they had for their freedom. And so it becomes almost like a like a compromise that elephants and humans strike in these situations where elephants are kind of tolerate working as long as they can be given that freedom in the evening overnight to go forage and often like to bathe and and swim and stuff like that to just be elephants Hmm. yeah so that excerpt from the ramayana the one we said to, to hold on into in your brain references elephants like mountains and being in rut which refers to the ideal state of a war elephant an adult male in the prime of life with large tusks in a state called must must 
is essentially the period when elephants are ready to breed. They experience a rush of testosterone, which primes them to fight other male elephants for females, so they become very aggressive and dangerous. Today, for those working with elephants in modern contexts, such as in zoos, must is considered a potentially dangerous situation that must be controlled. But the entire point of a war elephant is to have a giant, intimidating, aggressive, trumpeting beast to fight and scare the shit out of your enemies. Must only happens once a year, though, which isn't exactly ideal considering that war can't always align with that one season, so to speak. Indian elephant warriors induced a must-like state using substances, wine, even war drums to get the bull elephants worked up. This is from I.N.E. Akbari, A History of the Mughal Empire during the reign of Emperor Akbar in the 1500s. Quote, Elephant drivers have a drug which causes an artificial heat, but it often endangers the life of the beast. The noise of battle makes some superior elephants just as fierce as the running season. Even a sudden start may have such an effect. Thus, His Majesty's elephant, Gajmukta, he gets brisk as soon as he hears the sound of the imperial drum and gets the above-mentioned temporal discharge. End quote. Uh, the discharge refers to a di fluid discharge that elephants get at their temples when they're in this state of must. Yeah, they sort of leak from the sides of their heads. It kind of leaks down, and when they're at, like, the height of must, apparently it, like, leaks and goes into their mouth and, like, creates this, like, crazy testosterone cycle. Like, it's it's wild. I had to read a lot about must <laughs> for this, and, like, it is, it's really crazy. So this raises an important point about war elephants. In general, but especially during musk, bull elephants are extremely difficult to domesticate and to control. When they're ready to fight, they're literally in a frenzy and you cannot control them. So this really underscores the fact that the purpose of war elephants wasn't to ride as transportation. So they're not really like cavalry horses, right? And it wasn't also to carry equipment like oxen, even though you can also use them for those tasks. Instead, like we mentioned before, their entire purpose is actually to terrify troops and to fight other war elephants. And then maybe often sort of incidentally to stomp or gouge a few humans in the process. So essentially, they use the same method of fighting that they would use in the wild, but they turn it against other war elephants, the other elephants of the opposing army, by shoving and gouging with their tusks until one is vanquished. That's what they would be doing when they were in must anyway. They're just kind of harnessing that and putting it towards the opposing army. Elephants and elephant warriors, called Mahouts, made up an organized unit alongside the infantry and cavalry in a king's army. Outside of battle settings, the elephant corps was managed within the military bureaucracy. In the massive Mauryan Empire, an ancient empire that stretched across most of India between 321 BCE and 185 BCE, the military was overseen by a kind of war office with superintendents overseeing various branches. The Gajahayaksha was in charge of keeping, training, and the deployment of elephants. Not all elephants were all that trainable, as we've mentioned. The ancient text Arthashastra, which is kind of an Indian version of the art of war, written by Chanakya, a Maurya politician, has a chapter dealing with the training of elephants for use in the army. 
Chanakya separated elephants out into several different groups based on how trainable they were. Ones that were rideable, ones that would move when tapped with a staff, ones that would trot when encouraged by a staff or whip, those that would only move when pulled with a hook, staff, etc. The elephant corps had its own staff, according to the Tanakya, tasked with the day-to-day work on keeping the elephants healthy, including watchmen, sweepers, cooks, trainers, and grooms, in addition to their trained warrior riders. They also had their own elephant doctors, who ensured that the creatures were kept healthy and uh, poor treatment, defined as dirty stalls, poor food rations, poor bedding, beating, and endangering the elephants, was punishable by fines. Chanakya and other texts, including the Mahabharata, detail the kinds of equipment that elephant handlers used, including leather and metal armor and girths and necklaces used to go around the elephant for a warrior to hold on to. Depending on the time period and the kingdom, there could be anywhere from three to seven riders on each elephant, each with a separate task, some armed with bows and arrows or swords, others carrying hooks to help direct the elephant, some carrying a lance and a banner. If you've seen images of war elephants, chances are you've seen an elephant carrying a large structure, almost like a kind of tower on its back, um, ostensibly where a person sat. Sometimes today you'll also see images of elephants wearing an actual castle turret, And Elephant and Castle is the nickname of a busy intersection in London because the image of the elephant with a castle on its back has been used as a symbol or uh, as the name of a pub or other building in that area since at least the 18th century. The castle on the back of the elephant is an interpretation of a howdah, which is a platform used on the back of the elephant, often with some kind of structure on it for a person to sit in. Howdahs were actually not used in very ancient elephant warfare, and it's not clear exactly when they came into common use. Greek historians Diodorus and Pliny the Elder both mention them, but not until the first century CE, and they don't really appear in ancient Indian art or in the Arthashastra. They were definitely in use by the medieval period, but were usually used to carry kings or other noblemen rather than warriors. So, you know, it certainly looked imposing and regal to roll in on some kind of royal visit on an elephant in some lushly appointed howdah. But actual war elephants typically didn't have them and warriors just kind of hung on to that girth or another kind of strap and rode essentially bareback. The first non-Indian to write about Indian war elephants was a Greek physician named Satisius, who had encountered elephants in Persia during the Persian Achaemenid Empire. Uh, which existed from 553 B.C. to 330 B.C. Satesius wrote about watching an Indian elephant commanded by an Indian mahout topple a palm tree in Persia. Today, scholars believe that this singular elephant and its handler were gifts to the Persian king from an Indian kingdom. Satesius recorded other Persian stories about elephants, although it was mostly secondhand stories about Cyrus, the founder of the Achaemenid Empire, encountering them in battle when Indian kings came to fight in allies to Cyrus's enemies, the Derbakis, uh, which is located roughly where Turkmenistan is today. Achaemenid Empire is the Persian Empire. It's yeah. just two different names. So yes. if people are confused by the fact that we're using them both those terms, that's just because they're they're kind of interchangeable. Yes. 
The Derbykees used their elephants to ambush a cavalry. During the attack, Cyrus himself fell from his frightened horse and was killed by an Indian soldier. So the Persians encountered war elephants, but didn't really have them in their own armies. There is cuneiform evidence of elephants in Persia dating much further back, but only as occasional displays of wealth and power, not used in war. The use of war elephants in Persia didn't come till much later. However, what's really interesting is that Ceticius, this physician scholar who wrote about Cyrus's encounter with the Indian war elephants, also wrote several books of Assyrian histories, which were later shown um, by scholars to be totally fictional, that feature Persians using war elephants. So another side note about terminology, Assyria (laughs) was a region within the Persian Empire that sort of outlasts the larger Persian Empire. This episode was a lot of me like looking at ancient maps, <laughs> like map. Oh, I should say maps of the ancient world and trying to figure out who was where and what all of these names mean. So if I it seems like I'm over explaining, it's because I have to do that for myself. So bear with me, folks. Anyway, Ceticius's histories, quote-unquote histories, include the story of Semiramis, an Assyrian queen who never really existed. Semiramis was incredibly beautiful and used her beauty as a tool to seize power. According to Ceticius, one of the Assyrian king's lieutenants fell deeply in love with Semiramis, who was raised by the king's cattle herder. <laughs> There's this whole thing about how she was like, her, she was like, partly a god and her mother gave birth to her but then turned into a fish and like left her on the beach and she was fed by doves until the king's cattle herder found her and raised her and she was so beautiful because she was like the doves and Semiramis means like dove-like or something I don't know This is a very strange story. Anyway so she had been raised by the king's cattle herder is what you need to know and um uh, the king's lieutenant had to go like inspect the cows and he sees her there and he's like, oh, my God, she's just so beautiful. And so he takes her back to the royal court and marries her. I just have to read this quote because it's just incredible. Quote, as Semiramis had other qualities in keeping with her facial beauty, it so happened that her husband was completely enslaved by her. And because he did nothing without her advice, he was successful in everything. Mm. (laughs) I mean, honestly, relationship goals, right? She's very um, she's very talented and beautiful. Anyway, anyway, Semiramis is so smart and so beautiful and so brave. She like. I don't know, helps her husband win some big battle that the king eventually wants her for himself, of course, and threatens to kill her husband if he doesn't get out of the way. He actually like threatens to bang his head against stuff until his eyeballs pop out or something. I was reading this in the original Ceticius's history and it's wild. Her husband goes bonkers because of his desperate love and because he doesn't have a choice. And so he kills himself. Um, Semiramis then marries Ninus, the king. And then the King Ninus obligingly also dies. So Semiramis is left to rule as the queen. That's all backstory. <laughs> um, I thought this was about elephants. And we're, we're coming around. <laughs> ancient Assyrian romantic dramas. Let's, let's, let's reel, reel it back in. Reel it back in. Yeah. So, but I guess we have to finish this story too. 
Uh, so Ninus dies. Semiramis takes it upon herself to build a massive empire traveling all around the Middle East, Greece, and North Africa, and just sort of bringing those kingdoms to heal. And when that's settled, she looks to India, which is incredibly wealthy. Satisius describes the wealth of India in part by describing the army of Semiramis's Indian enemy, Stabrabates, um, which, uh, you know, a, a quote from Satisius is, quote, He reigned with countless soldiers and an incredible number of elephants, brilliantly adorned with the terrifying instruments of war. So, uh, what's her flick name? Uh, Semiramis. Semiramis amasses this huge army and navy, but she knew that against the Indian king, her army would still be at a disadvantage because they didn't have war elephants. So according to, to Satesius, quote, seeing that she was at a great disadvantage owing to her lack of elephants, Semiramis planned to build a peculiar kind of these animals, hoping to frighten the Indians who thought there were no elephants at all outside of India, end quote. So she called for the slaughter of 300,000 black cows and ordered her craftsmen to stitch the hides together and filled them with straw to make fake elephants. Satesius writes that, quote, each of these fake elephants had a man inside controlling it and a camel carrying it along, providing the illusion of a real beast to anyone looking on from afar. Then she had her real cavalry train their horses around the elephant models so they wouldn't be afraid of elephants when they encountered them in battle. So when Stabrabates learned about Semiramis's massive army, he freaked out and sent out his elephant hunters to gather even more elephants and, according to Satesius, quote, equipped them all splendidly with such things as caused terror and war. And in consequence, when they attacked because of their large numbers and the towers on their backs, they looked like something no human being could withstand. Semiramis won the first battle against Stabrabati's men and then continued her invasion of his kingdom with the model elephants out in front so that, quote, the enemy spies would announce to the king that there was a large number of wild beasts with her. The Indians were baffled, quote unquote baffled, about where the queen had gotten so many elephants. When Semiramis's and Stabrabati's armies finally met, the king's horses freaked out because the elephants didn't smell or look like the war elephants that they were accustomed to, and they were thrown into utter confusion. But Stabrabates' real war elephants proved too strong for the fake ones. This is a quote from Satesius. Since the animals were incredibly strong and confident in their peculiar powers, they easily destroyed anyone who resisted. Consequently, there was considerable slaughter of all kinds, some men falling under their feet, others torn apart by their tusks, and a number thrown into the air by their trunks. This carnage made it clear that Semiramis couldn't keep up the fight, and so she and her army escaped by cutting a pontoon bridge after her army had crossed a raging river. So, the story of Semiramis and her fake elephants is definitely fiction, even though it is very fun. But it does tell us something really important, that the Persians, and we can probably assume other Mediterranean powers, understood that the Indian armies were more powerful because of their war elephants, and maybe even more importantly, because of their ability to always get more when they were needed. So there was definitely knowledge of war elephants outside of India, but not of much use, right? This, And this didn't change significantly until Alexander the Great's invasion of the Indus Valley in the 300s of the, of the com, before the Common Era. 
Alexander was a king of the ancient Greek kingdom of Macedonia who ascended to the throne by age 20 and by 30 had created a massive Greek empire across the Mediterranean world. Although there are, of course, no elephants in Greece, Alexander most likely knew elephants existed and were used in battle because his tutor was Aristotle, who had written a surprisingly accurate description of elephants in his treatise, The History of Animals. Alexander encountered war elephants in his invasion of India in 326 BCE. When one army's elephants broke ranks and ran away, Alexander sent elephant hunters out to gather them for him. When they were caught, Alexander took not only the elephants, but their riders, meaning that he not only had the elephants, but also people who had the knowledge and skill needed to actually use them. During the Battle of Hydaspes, Alexander's biggest battle in India against King Porus, Alexander's Macedonian soldiers saw that not only were the elephants fearsome, but they were also intelligent and trainable. Plutarch, in his biography of Alexander the Great, wrote that Porus's own elephant was enormous, but also, quote, showed remarkable intelligence and solicitude for the king, bravely defending him and beating back his assailants while he was still in full vigor. And when it perceived that its master was worn out with a multitude of missiles and wounds, fearing that he should fall off, it knelt softly on the ground and with its proboscis, or its, its trunk, gently took each spear and drew it out of his body. But while the purpose of the war elephants was to terrify opposing troops into submission, Alexander had prepared his troops to expect elephants and even equipped them, although it's not totally clear to me how, um, he apparently equipped them with weapons crafted specifically for attacking elephants. So, uh, Alexander's soldiers attacked the elephants with spears and specialty swords and axes that they used against the animal's legs. Alexander defeated Porus, and later, as the army continued to move through the region, other kings gifted Alexander more elephants. So by the end of his invasion, he was reported to have hundreds, used mostly for their intimidating visual grandeur. But despite all of the appearances of power, the rest of the invasion did not go well for Alexander. His soldiers, fed up with the difficulties of campaigning around India, mutinied, forcing the general to retreat from his invasion of the Indus Valley. Alexander died not very long thereafter. But Alexander's successors hung on to the use of elephants. And in the power struggle that followed his death, the, the supposed successors all used Alexander's elephants in their own armies against each other. Alexander's original elephant corps couldn't last forever, though, so his successors had to find their elephants for themselves eventually. Increasingly, Greeks waged war on Indian kingdoms in their attempts to seize elephants. One of Alexander's generals, Eudamus, actually murdered Porus and seized his elephants. Seleucus, another of Alexander's generals, managed to acquire 500 elephants from the Moria kingdom. We've already mentioned them. Um, they, got, they got elephants from the forest. This influx of elephants helped Seleucus rise to power during the succession squabble and eventually found the Seleucid Empire, which stretched over modern-day Turkey and the Middle East to India, where it bordered the elephant-rich Moria Empire. It seems likely that the Seleucids established diplomatic relations with the Morians to maintain access to Indian elephants and their handlers. Another of Alexander's successors was Ptolemy, whose son Ptolemy II reigned over Egypt and the Levant. 
Ptolemy II, we're just going to call him Ptolemy, was obsessed with getting his own elephants, but lacked the land access to India that the Seleucids had. So instead, Ptolemy focused on gathering elephant handlers, Mahouts, from India, who could bring their skilled knowledge of handling the animals to North Africa. Once he had the Mahouts, he worked to gather the elephants, this time not from India, but, but from what today would be Eritrea and Ethiopia. This was not easy. The local people hunted and ate elephants, and they really didn't want to stop to appease some king they didn't care about. Either way, Ptolemy did end up with some African elephants. Okay, we mentioned earlier that African elephants are, generally speaking, larger than Asian elephants. But this isn't universally true. There are actually two kinds of African elephant, which I will admit I did not actually know before this. There is the savanna elephant and the forest elephant. The ones that Ptolemy had access to were African forest elephants, which are actually smaller than their Asian counterparts. It's the savanna elephant that we're all accustomed to seeing um, that is larger. This, uh, the smallness of the African forest elephant became a problem with the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, which is, I guess, actually what they're called, the Ptolemies, um, when they met in battle. The Seleucids' Asian elephants were much, much more powerful than the Ptolemies' African forest elephants. According to Greek historian Polybius, quote, most of Ptolemy's elephants were afraid to join battle, as is the habit of the African elephants, for unable to stand the smell and the trumpeting of the Indian elephants, and terrified, I suppose, also by their great size and strength, they immediately run away from them before they get near to them. We're going to move away from the ancient world to talk about the use of elephants in modern wars in a second, but we can't move on without addressing the... <clears throat> elephant in the room so clever so clever (laughs) the carthaginian general hannibal crossing the alps with his war elephants to attack rome during the punic wars even if you know nothing about war elephants this is the image you likely have when you hear the phrase the carthaginian empire ringed the western end of the mediterranean sea with holdings in what is now spain and north africa Not exactly a region full of native elephant populations, but they had proximity to the Ptolemaic Empire and most likely got African elephants and mahouts through Numidia, which is Algeria today, and Mauritania, which is not Mauritania today, but Morocco today. The Carthaginian Empire was spread out and included several islands like Sicily, Corsica, and Sardinia, making sea travel really important. Somehow, not only did the Carthaginians build an impressively large elephant corps, but they were also able to transport it by water, making it possible for them to get their elephants to their territory in modern-day Spain. This was no small feat, uh, one that didn't always go smoothly, and we'll talk about that in a second, but it was critically important during the Punic Wars, which Carthage fought against the Romans. The invasion of the mainland of the Roman Empire, or Italy, was led by Hannibal, a Carthaginian general and political leader. In 218, during the Second Punic War, there are three, um, Hannibal led some 40,000 infantrymen and 12,000 cavalry, accompanied by 37 war elephants, along the Mediterranean coast of Spain and France. When they reached the Rhone, Hannibal was faced with the problem of how to get the elephants across the river. 
Polybius, that Greek historian we've mentioned a couple times, says that, quote, the question that caused Hannibal the greatest embarrassment was how to get the elephants, 37 in number, across. So here he is, here's Hannibal, with dozens of the most powerful military weaponry imaginable, and he might not be able to get them across a river. So this just goes to show how logistics can make or break a military maneuver, right? Eventually, Hannibal tasks some men with coming up with a plan to get the elephants across by floating them on rafts towed by boats. The next problem was going to be getting the elephants onto the rafts. The elephants had been trained um, by their handlers to follow them up to the water, but they had also been trained to never actually go into water. So they had to figure out a way to get them to get onto the rafts. So they literally lured them onto the rafts with female elephants. Um, Apparently the females had no problems getting onto the rafts and also... Why do they have female elephants with them since they weren't used in war? None of these questions are answered by Polybius. Um, Anyway, this is what they, according to Polybius, did. But when the raft was cut free of its moorings and started to float away from the shore, the elephants all freaked out. Polybius says this, quote, Hereupon, the animals, becoming very alarmed at first, turned around and ran about in all directions. But as they were shut in on all sides by the stream, they finally grew afraid, and were compelled to keep quiet. In this manner, by continuing to attach two rafts onto the end of the structure, they managed to get most of them over onto these, but some were so frightened that they threw themselves into the river when they were halfway across. The mahouts of these were all drowned, but the elephants were saved owing to the power and the length of their trunks. They kept them above the water and breathed through them at the same time spouting out any water that got into their mouths and so held out, most of them passing through the water on their feet. So a very dramatic river crossing in which the rafts turned out to not actually be all that necessary. (laughs) Wow. That still was not the biggest hurdle. Once across the Rhone, Hannibal's troops, including the elephants, had to cross the Alps, which was no small feat. Throughout their journey through the mountains, Hannibal's army was attacked by quote-unquote barbarians or tribes living in the region. In this case, the elephants came in handy because the tribal warriors were too afraid to attack the army when the elephants could be seen. But the crossing was extremely hard on the elephants. It was bitterly cold. The path required the elephants to walk on narrow passes and through heavy mud and ice. And the highest areas had no leafy trees or grasses for them to eat. Amazingly, he managed to get all 37 elephants through the mountains and use them in his initial battles against the Romans. At the Battle of Herdonia, Hannibal deployed the elephants against Roman general Fulvius and instructed them basically to create chaos, stomping around and shouting false orders. The elephants were also used in the much larger battle at Trebia, which was a Carthaginian success, but came at the cost of several elephants. And over time, all but one elephant died of exposure and hunger. The Carthaginians, however, continued to rampage through Italy with Hannibal himself riding the last elephant. This elephant, according to lore, was named Surus, had one broken tusk, and is still common in Italian imagery. The Second Punic War continued until the Romans attacked Carthage, um, because they were unable to defeat Hannibal himself, and forced the rest of Carthage to surrender. One of the surrender terms was the complete surrender of all war elephants, and a promise that they would not obtain more in the future. 
that's not exactly the end of the use of elephants in warfare. After all, according to Thomas Troutman, quote, for three centuries from Alexander to Caesar, there was scarcely a war among the countries surrounding the Mediterranean in which elephants did not have a great influence. They continue to be a vital part of warfare in India well into the gunpowder era, with records indicating that even as late as 1720, elephants were used in combat carrying small cannons on their back. The latest date that Thomas Troutman could find of elephants in combat was in Cambodia in 1833, when a Siamese or Thai army came to invade Vietnam with a, quote, multitude of enormous elephants. But elephants did continue to play a role in warfare. In 1942, as the Japanese invaded Burma, also known as Myanmar, during World War II, a British expat named James Williams, who worked with elephants in the teak lumber industry, used his herd of 110 elephants to evacuate the wives and children of the Bombay Burma Corporation, the teak company that he worked for. The only way out of the country was on foot, and the main roads were either clogged with desperate refugees or being kept open for troop movements. The company decided that they could use their working elephants to aid in the evacuation, carrying supplies as the humans marched to safety in India, where the British 14th Army could provide protection and they would have access to rail travel. It was an extremely arduous journey with immense stress for the humans, of course, but also for the elephants who were very accustomed to a routine, including, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, a certain amount of freedom to forage after they had completed their work at the end of the day. At one point, the stressed elephants bolted into the jungle and had to be kind of forced back using those elephant hooks. After weeks of hiking, the group eventually made it to the Indian border and to the safety of the British Army convoys. With the women and children in relative safety in India, Williams, also known as Elephant Bill, joined the 14th Army as a lieutenant colonel. He was a huge asset. He spoke fluent Burmese and knew the local train intimately. But mostly, Williams was concerned about his elephants and wanted to get them before the Japanese did. He also was convinced that the elephants could help the British cause. They could build bridges and clear pathways for armies to move on, making it possible for the army, uh, the British army to combat the Japanese in Burma. He made the case to the command of the army, and they trusted him. He was given special status in Burma within the British Force 136, a kind of special operations unit in the Southeast Asian theater. Williams and his elephants built bridges ahead of the moving army, helping make it possible for the British to keep fighting in the country instead of surrendering it to the Japanese. The Japanese were also using elephants, and Williams wrote that the struggle for elephants had become a war within a war. Elephants became a target for air defenses, trying to keep them out of the hands of the Japanese. A journalist wrote that American pilots, quote, machine-gunned elephants, and when they failed to drop or even halt the beasts, the flyers dumped firebombs, hoping to start a stampede. I know, it's terrible. Once when Williams tried to bring in a group of elephants that had been hidden by Mahouts called Uzis in Burma, they were ambushed by Japanese soldiers while trying to get to the elephants. Several elephant handlers and Indian soldiers were killed and the elephants seized by the Japanese. The war was obviously difficult for the elephants. They were hit with shrapnel and explosives, and often when they were seized back from the Japanese, they were suffering chemical burns from the batteries and the radios that they had been forced to carry. 
One of the elephant corps' best elephants, named Pagoda Stone, was killed by a landmine. Things got much more complicated in 1944, when Williams was tasked with another evacuation, this time the evacuation of the elephants themselves. The animals were immensely valuable to the British cause, but the Allies were also preparing a massive assault against the Japanese in Burma, and they couldn't risk harming the elephants or allowing them to fall into Japanese hands. There's no easy way to move elephants out of the way, of course. So Williams and his men, joined by several dozen um, additional refugees, made an extremely difficult journey, even more difficult than the first evacuation, um, this time taking a different route, one that would keep them hidden and also take them through the mountain ranges in the north of Burma. The changes in altitude and bad weather made everyone, both human and elephant, sick. Eventually, as Williams scouted the route ahead of the moving elephant convoy, because they're they're moving off of like the beaten path, essentially. So they're kind of he keeps going ahead of them to see the terrain because he's, you know, based on the maps that he's working with. Um, And as he's doing that, he finds himself faced with a sheer stone wall, which will be absolutely impossible for the elephants to traverse. They were stuck and they were terrified of falling into the hands of the Japanese. Williams, with no other choices, gathered every able person in the group and had them saw away at the ridge until they basically built a staircase, a massive elephant staircase. There was absolutely no telling whether it would work. Williams was pretty sure at first that it couldn't work. The only example he could call on of, an, of elephants traversing that kind of terrain was literally Hannibal crossing the Alps. But there was no other option. Williams had his favorite, most trusted elephant, Bandula, lead the rest to the stair- staircase. When they arrived, Williams' trusted elephant handler, Potok, commanded Bandula, Thwar, or climb. This was a command he was familiar with from his days logging teak. The elephant climbed up the first step, then stopped for several minutes, and seemed to think about the task at hand. Finally, he made a decision and started to climb the staircase. It took Bandula three hours to get to the top of the wall, followed by the rest of the elephant corps. It was a mind-boggling achievement, but they couldn't stop. In all, they hiked for three weeks before they reached the safety of India. The elephant corps' work didn't end there either. They did eventually go back to Burma to keep up their vital work building bridges, but for the time being, humans and elephants enjoyed a long rest in the tea fields of India. And like the elephants really enjoyed the tea fields of India because they love to eat tea. They love to eat tea? Oh, yes. And the Indian farmers were super not happy about that. And Williams was like, I don't care. My elephants are going to eat whatever they want. They're going to get fat on tea. That's right. Hundreds of elephants were killed in Burma during World War II, most of them working on behalf of humans in a war that they didn't understand. Other elephants also paid the ultimate price for the whims of humans. During the 1943 Battle of Berlin, the Allies bombed the Berlin Zoo, destroying the Elephant Pagode, or the Elephant Pagoda, which was the Elephant House. All seven of the elephants that lived in the Elephant House were killed. Imagine the terror that these elephants experienced as the bombs fell around the zoo, totally unable to escape their cages and unable to understand what was going on, right? 
The elephants in the Berlin Zoo, just like the elephants in zoos all around the world, were used by humans during the war effort, just not in the same way as generals like Hannibal, Alexander, and Ptolemy had used them. Instead, they served as symbols of sacrifice, of patriotic war work, or of the brutality of the enemy, all designed to inspire humans. Zoo elephants worked crop fields in Great Britain, and images of their suffering and the Berlin Zoo bombing offered Germans a safe opportunity to remember their losses to the Allies negatively, right? Like, it, this is culturally not something that is, is done in Germany because of the complicity of Germans, right, during the Holocaust and World War II. And so this was kind of a way that they could think negatively of what the Allies did to Germany. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when the reality of having large, dangerous animals that require massive amounts of food in captivity outweighed their symbolic usefulness, elephants, among many other zoo animals, were simply abandoned or even killed. The history of elephants in war is dramatic, and it's very interesting, hopefully, as we've demonstrated. Um Today, war elephants are mostly the province of fantasy media and games, which makes them seem fantastical and mythical, right? I don't know if you've encountered war elephants in games, but certainly my husband plays Magic um, the Gathering, and war elephants are a major part of that imagery. Hmm. Um, same thing with, with um, games like Warhammer, right? Or movies like Lord of the Rings. Yeah, exactly. Right. Lord of the Rings, other fant- fantasy and, and um, uh, what's the word? Fantasy, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's just fantasy, yeah. And aren't there any, there's none in Game of Thrones? I was trying to think and I didn't remember no. any. Game of Thrones we, is too I guess it's too medieval. northern. Yeah. Yeah, too European. European. Um, But so one thing I was forced to think about in researching this episode was the reality of using elephants in war. Not just kind of this mythological, fantastical element, but the reality of them, right? That... Elephants are thinking beings with their own needs and wants. And so to use them in war in any capacity means forcing them to sublimate that to human needs that they don't necessarily understand or care about. One thing that surprised me about the scholarship on animals used in warfare was how much of it seemed skewed towards ideologies of animal liberation, um, a condemnation of uh, speciesism and human chauvinism, this idea that humans are the dominant and superior species on Earth and that their human rights supersede the rights of other animals. Um, I was a little weirded out by that at first. I didn't expect it. And it's not something that I'm super familiar with. But as I read more about elephants, the more that approach actually came to make sense to me. The history of war elephants is absolutely a history of human chauvinism and the assumption that humans can and should use other animals for human ends, even when it means extreme stress, sickness, and even death for those animals. So I found this really interesting. It was something that um, I definitely want to read more about. Um, what are your thoughts on on this, on war elephants and human chauvinism? And well, it's interesting that you should you should ask these questions because I ask or I discuss things that might be useful for thinking about this question from the perspective of the ancient and medieval and early modern worlds, right? Like the pre-industrial age, mm-hmm. because 
elephants notwithstanding, well, elephants included, depending on what region of the world you're in. Mm-hmm. But right, the, we're talking about a time period when the ubiquity of animals in everyday life would have made people, I think, think differently about animals than the way we do today, right? Yeah, like, totally. Uh, like, we we name Boonja, the, the whatever. Bandula. The, the elephant, Bandula, and, you know, we have our, we give our pets names and we're very removed from the reality of animals lives and in their necessity in human survival right right so that i think also gives probably the authors that you're talking about that the same kind of you know the distance and Mm -hmm. the ability to think differently about animals totally not not that they're wrong or right or whatever they're you know I, i probably think the same way because obviously i dote on my dog like she's a human child Mm -hmm. um but yeah so i it's just it was just interesting to think about how you know it would have been weird to name your your cows right like Mm -hmm. the cows in your field you would have just had cows maybe Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have anthropomorphized them the way that we do Mm -hmm. um animals today so um yeah i don't know Yeah, that's such an interesting point, because actually one thing that I was struck by was how in the primary sources that I um, kept coming back to, um, there were certain elephants that were given individual names. And I didn't really think about it while I was writing it. But now that you say that, that does sort of speak to not necessarily their, their being anthropomorphized, but I think to how important they were. Right. Um, and the ones that were given names were the ones that were like the um, belonged to the king or to the general. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like Surus, the one that Hannibal apparently rode. Right, um, yeah. And so I think that that sort of indicates how important they were and how powerful they were, those individual elephants. But you're right. I mean, elephants were understood. um as tools, as, you know, as weapons, as machines. Or um, as food in some As in food, some cases, right, right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that this is, and I bet we would, you know, find this with other animals if we looked at other war animals, is that it's really tricky and complicated that people have, people throughout time, I think, have looked at war animals as, a tool as a weapon, but also as a companion and as, you know, because people like animals and sort of are, always have, depending on the culture and the, you know, the the region and all that sort of thing. You know, different cultures have different beliefs about animals. But, um, you know, even those ancient Indian texts were talking about sort of the emotional intelligence of a- elephants, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, I mean, I... I think that this is also, this might look different if we were talking about a different kind of animal, like oxen, right? I don't right. know if it, it would, if we'd be having quite the same conversation because we we think of elephants as unique, as being yeah. really intelligent and really kind of capable of emotions in a way that, like, you know, we don't think about all those cows that Semiramis slaughtered, right? Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. No. Yeah. I think you're right. So, yeah, I, the thoughts. I didn't think that um, I would be as interested in war elephants. I thought I was going to write about dogs 
actually more. I was going to write a lot about dogs in war, but once I got going on the elephants, it was just, there was so many really interesting stories. Um, And I liked that it got to be a story so much about India, which I don't typically do episodes on. So I learned a lot. Yeah. I hope that you enjoyed it, people. And if you didn't, keep it to yourself. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Don't tell me. Um, we apologize to all of our listeners who know that we butchered all those Ugh. Indian names. Yeah, we did our best. We did Google them, but, you know, Google is only as good as Google can be. Right. Um, so thanks for listening. Make sure you follow us, subscribe, and leave us a positive review and five stars on the old podcast catcher, wherever you're listening. Um you can find transcripts and the sources for this episode, all those books that Sarah used for writing this episode about about elephants in the at our website, digpodcast.org. And we love to hear from you. So we're still on Twitter for now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fingers crossed. Dig, dig underscore history. And we're on Instagram, dig underscore history. Uh, and you can always send us an email. Hello at digpodcast.org. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. <laughs> it's like I was on drugs. <laughs> they also appear in ancient Assyrian. I have no idea. I think that let's say and I don't know what NS means. I have absolutely no idea. I don't know where I was going for there. Oh my. <laughs> Stabrota. Stabro. I was pronouncing it Stabrobates. Stabrobates. Stabrobates? Stabrobates. Elephants of the fuck. Sorry. (laughs) Are we going to talk about the ancient psychic warrior tandem elephant? (laughs) I should have put it in here. You should have. It's all right. Put it in the out. And Bamanya. Bamanya. Really put a crap on my dramatic reading with all these f***ing words. <laughs> See, it's not actually a, a abrupt transition. Okay, good. I'm preparing us for what will later be an abrupt transition. Abru- <laughs> <laughs> Prince Ali, Ali, And that elephant has like the little patch of hair on his head and like (laughs) the little hat because it's actually the monkey. monkey. (laughs) It's so cute. So cute.